Hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast by the Trainees and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett, and I'm a Medical Registrar in Acute and Internal General Medicine. Today I am joined by Dr Alistair McGilchrist. He is Chair of the Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems, an RCPE-based partnership tackling Scotland's alcohol problem. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr McGilchrist. Welcome. Welcome, Dr McGilchrist. Thanks very much, Johnny. Nice to be here. Happy to uh, to help. I'm also a physician at the Royal Infirmary, uh, liver specialist there. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Really, let's just start and ask the question: Why are we talking about alcohol-related liver disease and alcohol dependency syndrome today? Well, three reasons really. One, it's very common. I would be surprised if uh, any trainees or young doctors doing a medical take don't see a significant amount of liver disease um, anywhere in the UK, particularly in Scotland. We're looking at around seven to 8,000 admissions a year in Scotland and seven to 800 deaths. Alcohol-related liver disease accounts for the vast majority of all alcohol-specific deaths. That's about 75% of all alcohol-specific deaths are due to liver disease. It's a very dangerous condition with a high mortality. The in-hospital mortality from admissions with alcohol-related liver disease is in the region of 20 to 25%, so it's one of the most fatal conditions. And there's lots of room for improvement in how we manage it. Uh, we might get a chance later on to talk about an NCPOD uh, audit of alcohol-related liver deaths in the UK, and uh, there's plenty of room for improvement. So let's just start with that. What can we be doing to improve uh, this epidemic, so to speak, of alcohol-related liver disease? Well, to some extent, what we're doing as acute physicians or as doctors in general is that we are, if you like, we're mopping up the floor while the taps are still running. So it would be good to turn off or slow down the taps by which I mean population-based public health measures to reduce alcohol consumption are really the thing which will drive down the morbidity and mortality of alcohol harm in general and also liver disease. And Scotland is reasonably progressive in that form. You've probably heard of the the, the various policies in place, including minimum unit price, which we might get a chance to speak about later. But the, the answer to the problem really lies with public health. However, that's not to say there isn't a role for doctors. Um, There's plenty we can do when patients are admitted unwell, but there's also a lot more we can do in terms of earlier diagnosis. Liver disease in general, and alcohol-related liver disease is no exception to this, it fits the bill of being a silent killer in that you often have irreversible advanced disease before it comes to light. About 60% of patients with liver disease, their first inkling is that they're admitted to hospital with some catastrophic event, such as a variceal bleed. And uh, we need to make a lot of a lot more effort than we do to pick up the, the liver disease at an earlier asymptomatic stage. Who is this affecting? Who are you in your daily practice seeing with alcohol-related liver disease and, and who's getting it? Yes, I'm glad you asked that, Johnny. In the UK, the disease really affects more men than women. The, the incidence in women is increasing, and you sometimes hear a lot of publicity about that, but uh, two-thirds of the deaths are still, for, still in men. 
And you also might hear a bit of emphasis on young people with liver disease, which of course is tragic when it occurs, and that is true. But the big peak of both harm and of death is in late middle age, middle age and late middle age. Um, so the, the middle aged men are, are, are the, really the majority of the patients that we see. And uh, it's important to remember that these are folk at their, in the prime of their life. Uh, most diseases kill you later. And so if you look in terms of years of life lost, alcohol is one of the biggest killers because of this premature death. I guess one of the key things I'd like just to follow on on that is, is it ever too late to stop if the damage has been done? Very, very important point. Yes, I'm glad you asked that because I I have that conversation with patients in every clinic I have because if they've not got cirrhosis, it's great if they can stop while it's still at a reversible stage. If they've already got cirrhosis, it's even more important that they stop because even with quite significant decompensation, the liver can recover. And I have many, many patients in the clinic who have cirrhosis, who are perfectly well, who are no longer drinking. And of course, if the cirrhosis is picked up uh, coincidentally, as it quite often is, um, and they they haven't decompensated, if if they stop drinking at that point, there's every chance they'll remain well. So that's a really useful description of the presentations of the patients that come in with alcohol-related liver disease, Dr. McGilchrist. And I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask was, in the patients that have come in with cirrhosis or the beginnings of signs of cirrhosis, such as varicel bleeds, what, what things can we offer our patients to lower their risk of mortality um, and reduce the complications from this? Well, one of the reasons why I'm keen on that staging process that we mentioned, trying to detect who has advanced fibrosis, who has cirrhosis, is that there are things you can do to prevent some of the complications. Um, and in our patients with cirrhosis, um, we know that uh, non-selective beta blockers are very effective at preventing varicel bleeds. We used to endoscope everybody with cirrhosis to determine if they had varices and therefore might benefit from a beta blockade. Interestingly, one of the effects of COVID has been to make us look again at our endoscopic practice. And we now recognize that we can predict fairly well who will benefit from non-selective beta blockers just from their liver function and from their platelet count without the need for endoscopy. So that's a good way of preventing uh, variceal hemorrhage. And the second important preventative measure that we can take is with regular screening for liver cancer, with six monthly ultrasound scans and AFP measurements. If you can pick up their uh, developing liver cancer at an early stage, there's a good chance that it might be treatable. Whereas, of course, if you wait until it's symptomatic, it's very unlikely to be to be curable. That's great. And I think that's something that we really need to have a, an awareness of whenever we're in the acute medical unit and we're thinking about other things that we, we can do and uh, refer our patients on to you guys, the, the gastroenterology doctors, the liver doctors, hepatologists, in how we're managing these patients. Is there anything that we can do as front door clinicians to empower our patients to be aware of this and have an insight into their their alcohol awareness? Well, yes. I think that every hospital encounter should include an alcohol history. That's meant to be part of the the skill set of every doctor. Um, It's on the undergraduate curriculum and it's on the postgraduate curriculum for every specialty, not just medical specialties, but every specialty. And so just in the same way as you always ask patients whether they smoke, you should be asking your patients whether they drink. And um, if they are drinking in excess, then I guess one of my key messages for today is that if you come across somebody who's drinking too much, think about the liver. And conversely, obviously, if you see somebody with liver disease, think about alcohol. That might sound obvious, but you'd be surprised how often that link isn't made. 
And I guess we, we talk about the key skills of history taking, and really that's the core of our, our assessment. Our first thing that we do is ask a history of our patients. And I, I guess the question is, can we be doing better when we're taking our alcohol history? And if so, what kind of things would you advise us to be doing? Keep it in the forefront of your mind, so remember to ask about it. I'm not so fussed about being too rigid in the questions that you ask. Um, there are plenty good tools out there. There's the audit, uh, AUDIT uh, questionnaire, or there's a shorter, fast questionnaire, which is a sort of um, shorter form of audit. And some hospitals do have these at the front door. So part of the EPR, part of the patient record, is to fill that in. And that's quite good at picking up dependence. But if we're talking about consumption levels, which is actually more of an issue for the liver disease, um, then I would just make sure you ask the patients how much they drink. Uh, and most patients are actually honest. I know that we all have this sort of idea that patients do underestimate their alcohol, and that they do to some extent, but just ask them the questions and be aware of what the units mean. So we, we know that obviously there are recommended guidelines of what consumption of, of units of alcohol men and women should take per day and per week. And just for our listeners, can you just remind us about what they are and how we can signpost to this when we speak to our patients? Sure. So I think doctors are almost as bad as their patients at counting the units. And um, they, for some time now, the, the, the guidance in all four uh, nations in the UK from all four chief medical officers has been unified that the safer guidelines are to drink no more than 14 units per week, that's for men and women, and to have a couple of alcohol-free days per week. Now, to be honest, in reality, most patients with liver-related damage are drinking substantially more than that. These are the all-health risk guidelines. And in fact, there is no amount of alcohol which is completely safe. Um, 14 units is safer, but seven units is safer still, and no units is the safest. So none is fine and less is better. But if they're drinking more than 14 units, then they're drinking more than the UK health recommendations. One point before we leave the units, um, um, if, you, if you talk about units to the patients, they will not quite grasp it. So my, my standard line is a bottle and a half of wine or six pints of beer. They'll understand that. Not very much. So we've talked about units and how we can get a gauge about whether our patients are meeting those safer guidelines of alcohol consumption. But in the, in the instances where we think that our patients might be drinking more than what they say, or perhaps more than what they say over a longer period of time, are there any other investigations that we can use to help the into the patients that their liver isn't happy? Yeah, I think that there's the ideal answer here and there's the, the practical answer. We're all familiar with LFTs. LFTs are ordered for, for millions of reasons every day. There are some problems with that. We talk about liver function tests. They don't really test liver function. We should probably call them liver blood tests. And they're an extremely crude tool. There are many patients with cirrhosis who have normal LFTs. And of course, there's many other reasons for the, for the liver blood test to be abnormal. But it's what's available to you. And if you do nothing else, then check the blood tests. Um, aware of the limitations, just, just, just ask for the LFTs. What the, what the purists would like, what I would like, if you like, um, is a, a, a better assessment of the severity of liver disease, because staging liver disease is some measure of liver fibrosis. If you remember the pathophysiology of alcohol-related liver disease, which is similar to many other liver diseases, there's a sort of slow, insidious progression from 
fatty liver to inflammation to fibrosis and then eventually to cirrhosis. So knowing how much fibrosis is present um, is a very useful way to stage the severity of the disease. And there are ways that that can be done, both from simple blood tests and uh, calculations from that, um, or there are more specific non-invasive tests, such as fibroscans or certain biomarkers. I don't think you or a generalist should get too worried about that. The LFTs is a crude marker, but it's, it's better than nothing. One of the um, things that we'll often see is that patients may come in with symptoms of alcohol withdrawal syndrome, or perhaps in, in, in an extreme sense, delirium tremens. And in, in those situations in the acute medical unit, often the focus is on how, how we can we manage these patients and help them be safe and, and, and get them through this horrible time. Is, is this our window when we can refer these patients to you after they've gotten better? Um, or is there anything else at this point, in this kind of instance, that you would advise? Well, I think there's two different things here. I, th- I think it's, it's useful in your mind to separate alcohol use disorder, you know, um, using alcohol hazardously and perhaps harmfully from alcohol-related liver disease. And most of the talk we've been having so far is about alcohol use disorder in general. And in that situation, um, many hospitals, but not all, do have a specific alcohol care team or an alcohol service. Um, And in somebody who you feel um, has a problem, then it's an ideal opportunity to get um, a specialist nurse involved who can counsel the patient, um, advise them of help available to them. And also, perhaps, uh, in many hospitals, they will also give advice on on how best to prevent alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Just talking about alcohol withdrawal syndrome, I'm a big fan of the so-called symptom-driven management. Um, In Edinburgh, we use a a system, you know, by the acronym CIWA, C-I-W-A. In Glasgow, there's a a slightly modified one called GMOS, G-M-A-W-S. And these are both, um, they look quite labour-intensive. And when you first hear about it, you think, "Mm, I'm not quite sure about this. I'd rather just prescribe my 10 milligrams of Valium three times a day for everybody. That's nice and easy, isn't it? But in fact, I'm a real convert to how well the symptom-driven management works. Um, the, the, The nurses get very used to it and they like it. They ask a series of questions on a regular basis every few hours for these patients and prescribe benzodiazepines accordingly. And uh, it's very effective at preventing overuse and underuse of benzodiazepines, both of which are dangerous. Yeah, I think obviously it's that fine balance, isn't it, about how we we help our patients get through this part of this illness. I I guess one of the things that we often try to instill, but it's maybe harder to, to do, is advise cutting down alcohol, but also try to advise on abstinence. Is that something that you would try and help patients with by signposting to services such as alcohol addiction services or um, other local services that might be available in, in the region? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, for sure. I mean, the services are somewhat stretched, you know, the, 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 the available services. And often in whatever region you are, it's not always that easy to know where the services are because it's a mixture of voluntary services, health board services, um, council services. So that's one of the advantages of having um, alcohol specialist nurses who, who, who will have your uh, th- those pathways at their fingertips. I think that we as liver specialists have perhaps somewhat passed the buck in the past in terms of um, forgetting the elephant in the room, if you like, that we're quite good at managing Variceal bleeds, and we're quite good at dealing with infected ascites or or, or liver-induced coma. But um, 
what saves lives for these patients is to get them to maintain long-term abstinence and um, getting a handle on where local services are and how to access is very important. Indeed, and, and as you say, often we, we see patients come in with complications such as you've mentioned as ascites and thyroid bleeding. I guess in that situation, I'd like to sort of now talk about what do we do when it gets to that point? And one of the things that I was keen to talk about today was when it comes to end-stage liver cirrhosis um, or decompensated liver cirrhosis, what are the options for our patients um, who have had that, that etiology from, from alcohol? What can we do for them? Well, to some extent, we're starting at the end of the story there. Um, unfortunately, that's often where we start. You know, the first presentation is indeed a catastrophic event, as we've described. But don't forget that um, the sort of uh, boring bread and butter of picking up the diagnosis early in the asymptomatic patient will do more good in the long term to more patients than managing the sick patient. Having said that, that NCPOD report, which I mentioned earlier, which is coming up for 10 years now since it was uh, since the audit was undertaken, but eight years since it was published, that was Wales and not Scotland, in fact. Um, but I'm sure the, the, the message is, is relevant to Scotland too. It identified that in over half of the cases, this was an audit of alcohol-related liver disease deaths in secondary care, in over half of the cases, there was room for improvement, whether it be the organisational issues, uh, of making sure that you get somebody who knows something about liver disease involved early on, ideally in the first 24 hours, or just very simple things like many of these patients die of sepsis and making sure they don't have infected ascites by making sure you do an acidic tap in the first 24 hours. These are very simple things to do, but surprisingly often overlooked. And then, of course, there's more almost cultural or resource issues about access to intensive care. There is sometimes an inappropriate nihilism about heavy drinkers and their chances of surviving intensive care. Now, of course, many patients with multi-organ failure will die. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a second that we should use intensive care beds inappropriately. But patients who have a single organ problem, such as an episode of encephalopathy associated with sepsis, where you can anticipate recovery, um, may well do well. So uh, appropriate access to ICU is important for these patients. Um, I must be wary of putting a stigma on the, the alcohol label. Certainly when I, when I worked in the intensive care unit up in Gilchrist, we would see a lot of patients who'd come through the units having had a liver transplant. I deliberately didn't mention liver transplant yet um, because liver transplant is not the answer to alcohol-related liver disease. The answer is to reduce the population consumption of alcohol. If you think of a pyramid, there's a tiny, tiny proportion of the patients with alcohol-related liver disease will benefit from, from liver transplant. Uh, that's because many of them stop drinking and get better before they need it. And conversely, sadly, uh, many are not able to stop drinking, therefore are not eligible. But having said that, even though it's a tiny proportion, it's still the commonest reason for liver transplant. Um, we do 50 to 100 liver transplants in Scotland every year, and the commonest single indication is alcohol is liver damage. So yes, it definitely has a role and, uh, and is very useful for patients. And in two circumstances, those patients who have advanced liver disease who don't get better when they stop drinking, uh, many do get better, but not all. And those patients who are not drinking, but who develop another complication, namely hepatocellular carcinoma, primary liver cancer, uh, which is one of the things that happens in patients with cirrhosis, even when the cirrhosis is, is, is stable or well compensated. So those two indications, either liver failure or liver cancer as a complication of cirrhosis. And 
alcohol-related liver damage is just like any other etiology. You take it on its merits, uh, and, and, and many patients will benefit and do well. So I guess what I'd really like to go back to then is let's, let's tackle this head on and let's just talk about how we can do more to screen for alcohol and, and prevent it from happening. What, what would your, your key take-home points be on, on how we can best do this, Dr. McGilchrist? Well, it, it slightly depends who, who the we is. <laughs> I, I think the medical profession uh, does have a role in guiding policy, specifically using policies which are based on good evidence. And um, we've known worldwide through World Health Organization, WHO criteria for many years, what works in terms of reducing population alcohol consumption. And I like to think of it as the three A's, if you like, um, the availability, that's mainly your licensing laws. There's the attractiveness, that's mainly the advertising, uh, labeling, et cetera, and then television, advertising, sports advertising, et cetera, sports sponsorship. But the biggest of the three is affordability, i.e. what the price is. There's a very, very close relationship between the affordability, that's the price in relation to uh, disposable income, and the alcohol harm in any country and at any time point. And... Um, so controlling the price, whether that be by standard measures such as alcohol duty, that's the Chancellor's alcohol duty has been frozen for the past, oh, I think it's coming up for uh, eight or nine years now. So alcohol has been getting progressively cheaper in terms of uh, as inflation continues year on year with no increase in tax duty, alcohol has been getting progressively cheaper, or whether it's a more, if you like, progressive and more targeted option such as the minimum unit price, that's where you put a, a, a floor price per unit below which alcohol cannot be sold. And that has the advantage of specifically targeting the very cheap alcohols, which are the ones which the heavy drinkers very much favour, such as the, the cheap ciders and the cheap vodkas. One of the things that I guess our listeners will be aware of is, and we can't do a podcast episode without talking about it, is COVID and how that's affected alcohol habits. Is this something yeah. that you've, you've seen in, in your practice? Very much so. And it, it, it's quite a mixed picture. And I, I will be very interested to see what the, what the fallout is over the next few years of COVID. But in terms of the acute situation, during the first lockdown, there was no huge difference, either in terms of a fall number of admissions or an increase in the number of admissions. There has been a suggestion in a couple of audits, most recently uh, Basel, that's the British Association for Study of Liver um, audit, to get a snapshot of alcohol-related hospital admissions in hospitals throughout the UK for a week in August compared to August, that's August 2020 compared to 2019, showing quite a significant increase in alcohol-related uh, admissions. I think it was about 19% increase. And that's what people are seeing on the ground. They're seeing more liver disease. And that's interesting because the total consumption picture is quite subtle. Obviously, Pubs and restaurants have been closed for long periods, so on sales have been almost zero. But there's been, of course, a marked increase in off sales. Overall, the increase in off sales seems to not counter the, the reduction in on sales. So the total consumption may be slightly less than, than it was previously. And that's interesting in terms of a situation with more harm. One of the things that has come out from several surveys, and surveys you have to take with a pinch of salt, but the finding has been consistent, and that's that what's happening is that people who drink in moderation are drinking less, and people who drink heavily are drinking more. And that fits with the fact that one of the different trends that we saw in that aud audit uh, last autumn was more alcoholic hepatitis, which of course you see with, with particularly heavy consumption. 
So there is a worry that um, those that are at risk are drinking more heavily. And of course, drinking at home off sales, uh, alcohol from the supermarket uh, is a very uncontrolled situation. You know, you, th- th- there's no limit set, if you like. And we also are concerned that access to alcohol treatment services have been uh, limited because of the obvious restrictions and services imposed by COVID. And although many of the organisations, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, have done a good job of maintaining a virtual contact with patients, there's no doubt that we have had problems, particularly here in Edinburgh, with access to detox and rehabilitation beds. So just at a time when the services are most needed, they're, they're, they're under threat. Yeah, and I think you know the, the issues that we've talked about really highlight how important it is to to promote this public message to our patients. I guess I'd just like to wrap it up and, and ask your your key thoughts on what we can do on the acute medical unit and in the hospital wards to help our patients um, really tune in to what we're talking about today. Sure. So key points: um, take an alcohol history. If they're drinking to excess, particularly if you think they've got dependent features, um, tell somebody, signpost them to appropriate services, check their liver function. If you admit somebody who clearly has decompensated liver disease, and you know, you, you and I know exactly what that is, whether it be ascites, variceal bleed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, get a gastroenterologist who has an understanding of liver disease involved as early as possible. Don't miss sepsis and give them ITU care if it's appropriate. That's really useful and very informative, Dr. Michael I would like to once again thank you very much for this whistle-stop discussion on alcohol-related liver disease and um, alcohol consumption and safe drinking. And I would like to say thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. Please feel free to leave any comments via our Instagram and Twitter pages on the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh website. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Michael Chris. Thank you. You're welcome.